0: From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: This is the investigation the Speaker wants done in the manner he wants it done. Uh, That is to say, not very seriously and with a different objective than the American people have.
0: That's Adam Schiff. As you all probably know, he's the ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee. You've probably seen him on TV at some point. Congressman Schiff has been loudly defending Robert Mueller's investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 election and has a lot of thoughts about the investigation that his own committee is conducting as well. That's coming up. So obviously, one of the big pieces of news from this week, from Monday, was that it was basically on cable television. It was Sam Nunberg Day. He appeared on multiple shows saying lots and lots of different things about the Mueller investigation, whether he was going to comply with the subpoena. He made a lot of accusations about people. He gave a lot of opinions about a lot of things. But I just wanted to make sure that one of those opinions didn't slip through the cracks. This is Sam Nunberg on Ari Melber's show on MSNBC on Monday. That goes to a point that Preet Barrara, who, who I'm sure you've heard of, the federal yes. prosecutor... Yes. very nice guy. Today... I like his podcast, by the way. Yes, it's true. I will take praise from anywhere I can get it. Well, the first question is, what does it mean if Sam Nunberg decides not to comply with the subpoena? and? He was on TV all day on Monday, you know, asking literally the moderators of these shows, what's going to happen to me? If I go to jail, I'll just laugh about it. Well, I don't think jail is a laughing matter. Generally speaking, prosecutors are not to be trifled with if you defy the grand jury. And lots of people have gone to jail for periods of time after they're held in contempt by the court. And I have no doubt in my mind that if Sam Nunberg or anyone else for that matter decides to flout the instructions of the grand jury to appear... They will meet the same fate. Of course, we're recording this on the early afternoon of Tuesday, and I have no idea if Sam Nunberg is going to remain in his defiant posture or if he's going to do the right thing and the smart thing and spend a few hours going through his emails and appearing for testimony. That's just how it works. That's how it's supposed to work. That's how it has to work. I got some other questions about Sam Nunberg that were basically, you know, how does Bob Mueller, you think, deal with this? How does he treat such a witness? How does he think about the witness in terms of future use in the investigation or in some charges? So the first thing is they want to make sure they get his testimony. The second thing is from everything that I've seen, it doesn't seem clear to me at all that he has that much more to add. He left a campaign at a fairly early point. It looks like he has an ax to grind with Donald Trump. You know, he's a witness. I don't know how valuable he is, but if they ask for him, they want to get information from him and he's going to be compelled to do it or go to jail. And the third thing I would say, based on the performance yesterday, which was at times uh, poignant, also sad. There are people speculating about what his mental state is at one point. Also, I heard him say afterwards uh, that he was on antidepressants. So, you know, he's not the kind of person, separate and apart from how much knowledge he has about the workings of the Trump campaign or potential collusion, that is going to be very reliable. Reliable is not the word that comes to mind when you think about Sam Nunberg, generally, and certainly after that performance yesterday. As to whether or not uh, Mueller can do anything about someone like this, the obligation of a witness not to talk about what questions he or she was asked or not to talk about the subpoena who was issued to him, there is no such obligation. So, you know, prosecutors don't like it when people go out and make a spectacle of requests for information from them. But there's not a whole lot they can do about it, but they can make an assessment and a judgment about how viable a witness that person might be in the future, even if they have decent information. And I think it's a safe bet that you will not see Sam Nunberg appearing in a courtroom near you in connection with the Mueller investigation as a star witness. Another item in the news recently was that Jared Kushner's security clearance at the White House was downgraded. That prompted Twitter user A. Davis Williams to write in question is, ultimately, does it matter? Trump can still decide to let him see whatever, right? Well, the answer to that is, I suppose that's true. The president himself, as we've noted on the show before, did not have to go through any hoops to get clearance. No background check for him. He has access to the most sensitive information. The president also, as has been argued by prior presidents, can by simply an action of deciding to reveal something, declassify information, and presumably he could let Jared Kushner see materials that he wasn't supposed to see. But we got a very clear signal from Donald Trump that that's not how he was going to go about it. He said on television in front of cameras that the question of whether or not Jared Kushner would retain a high-level security clearance he was going to leave to the chief of staff, John Kelly. And it seems that he did allow that to happen. More interesting with respect to Jared Kushner though, I think is the reporting over the last week that the Mueller team is looking at Kushner's ties to overseas business people and whether or not he had any involvement in the request for receipt of significant loans at the same time that he was a White House staffer. If he did, that's a big problem. Hi, my name is Leslie. I'm calling from Laramie, Wyoming. There's been a lot of talk lately about arming teachers. And I wondered if there are any legal precedents or rulings that might mitigate for or against that move by states or local school boards. So if you could speak about that, I'd be really interested, particularly as a longtime high school English teacher and an English teacher educator. Thanks so much. Bye. Leslie, thanks for your question. I'm not aware of any federal law, certainly, that prevents the arming of teachers. I don't know of any local or state laws either. I think much as people may not like it, depending on your perspective, I think there's nothing that prevents a local community from deciding that it wants to have teachers or some subset of teachers at any school armed. I tend to agree with the side that says teachers should be teaching and teachers shouldn't be having to deal with other responsibilities like how to wield a firearm and not just wield a firearm, but understand that the tactical considerations in going after an armed, possibly mentally ill shooter with an AR-15, that seems too much to ask of our teachers. Someone suggested once, That if you want to think about this issue of arming teachers, go back in your mind to all the teachers you had growing up. And I had a lot of terrific teachers in high school and middle school. And I can't think of one, whether it's my literature teacher, my history teacher, my chemistry teacher, my calculus teacher, that I would want armed. They should just teach. And what further informs my view on this is a conversation I had not too long ago with the NYPD police commissioner, Jimmy O'Neill, who will be a future guest on this podcast. And his view from, you know, 35 years in law enforcement as a police officer and as a protector of public safety everywhere, and including the schools, is that that's a recipe for not good things to happen. My guest this week is California Congressman Adam Schiff. He is the ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee and once upon a time was a federal prosecutor. We talk about what's going on in the Russia investigation and what it's like to be in the middle of it. Stay tuned. Congressman Schiff, so pleased to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So I have so many things to ask you about and so many things I think people want me to ask you about. We could do a nine hour show, but apparently you have to vote and do other (laughs) congressman like things. So... We'll try to get to the, to the meat of matters as quickly as we can. But the first, the first thing I want to ask you, just on a human level, because this is something that happens to people who run across the president these days, you're the ranking member on the House Intel Committee, and you have uh, a job to do. And sometimes the way in which you do your job makes a certain person unhappy, who lashes out on Twitter, among other places. He has a lot of nicknames for various people. I think he's got some nicknames for you. I think he's called you Little, spelled with D's, uh, Leaky, various other things. How does it feel the first time,
1: you know, you look at your phone or an aide tells you, uh, look, this is what the president wrote about you? Well, I have to say uh, the first time it happened, it was quite surreal. I think I got a call from my communications director early one morning uh, to say the president had just attacked me. And the first nickname he gave me was uh, "Sleazy Adam Schiff." Initially, your reaction is that's absurd. Uh, there's no way the President of the United States is lobbing insults at members of Congress or anybody else. But of course, it's quite routine. It takes a little getting used to. Although I've had to because I'm—I think five nicknames uh, since that one. But I do remember picking up my son from camp uh, because this happened over the summer, and I wanted him to hear it from me rather than from a classmate. And I wasn't sure how he would react. And I, I said, Eli, I want you to know something happened during camp. It's not a big deal, but I want you to hear it from me. Uh, the president called your father sleazy. And he paused for a minute to kind of uh, think about what that really meant, what the consequence of that was. And then he looked at me and he said, can I call you sleazy? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that's when I knew it was going to be okay. Uh, I told him uh, only if he wanted me to call him Sleazy Junior but my, my, it, it, uh, my kids have been
0: calling me Sleazy for years
1: You know, my predominant reaction is It's really sad to see the office of the presidency brought so low It just can't help but undermine people's view of the u.s. presidency in a way That uh, this great office doesn't deserve and I guess at the end of the day, it kind of makes me grieve for what he's doing to the office.
0: Why do you think he can't settle on one nickname for you?
1: It's a good question. He's supposed to be really good at this. And the first rule uh, that I learned on the playground is you stick with one nickname or or it doesn't work. So I don't know why he keeps moving around. But Maybe alliteration
0: uh, is harder harder with your name.
1: Yeah, well, actually, with my name, I could tell you he could take a lot of lessons from my, my friends from grade school because they did much better. Shifty shift. I don't know. Has he used that one?
0: (laughs) Well, you're not, look, you're not low energy, which is the nickname he gave to Jeb. And we're going to get, so we're going to talk about a lot of the things you've been spending your energy on. But before we get to the Intel committee uh, and the investigation that Bob Mueller is overseeing, you know, you and I share something in common and everyone who listens to the show knows that the formative experience of my life was being an assistant U.S. attorney and then being the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. And you were an assistant U.S. attorney in the Central District of California. For a number of years how'd you like that job
1: it was a fantastic job uh, as you know it's a great group of people you're working with there's a lot of camaraderie and a real sense of mission uh, i think it is one of the most fun jobs uh, and interesting jobs in the law that you could ever hope to have and pre- you'll appreciate this in a way that folks uh, may may have lesser appreciation for that didn't work in the office i've been given a promotion ever since i left the office because people have a hard time that didn't work in the Justice Department distinguishing between a U.S. attorney and assistant U.S. attorney. (laughs) Uh, I was only an assistant U.S. attorney, uh, but I'm frequently referred to as a former U.S. attorney. Typical
0: Um, politician.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, Inflating the resume. No,
0: look, I get called the DA. I get called the attorney general. I get get a lot of different... Nobody knows what the titles mean. Did your experience, because I've watched you and as have most Americans and see how you conduct yourself in questioning of witnesses and how you present arguments in the committee. And I'll tell you frankly, the first time I saw you do that, I did not know your background, did not know that you had been an AUSA, uh, and I was not surprised. How has your experience as a federal prosecutor, used to go to court all the time, informed how you conduct yourself in committee?
1: Uh, It has been enormously helpful to have that background. you know, in some ways, it feels like my life has come full circle. When I was in the USA, probably the biggest case I had was involving a, an FBI agent that we indicted for spying for the Russians. I was working with a great deal of FBI agents on a case involving uh, Soviet espionage, and it feels very familiar now to be working on a similar investigation. Far more broadly, I just found the skills that I I developed as a prosecutor and as a lawyer useful in Congress. And one of the things that I learned as a prosecutor is you go into the courtroom, you fight it out with opposing counsel, keep it at a professional level, and when the case is over, you walk out of the courtroom, you have a beer with opposing counsel, and you leave the dispute in the courtroom. That works very well in Congress also. If you don't make the disputes personal, if you keep them over policy— at the end of the day, someone who is your most vigorous opponent on one bill ends up being your ally on the next if you don't make it personal. Uh, so that was, a, I think, a very important general lesson, uh, you know, more particular to the Russia investigation. It's been very useful to know uh, basically how to conduct a large, essentially white-collar investigation, you know, how to question witnesses, how to know what documents you need to get, what the right processes are, how to ask the right questions, uh, when to know you're getting the runaround. Uh, those are very useful skills. And it's a particular challenge on the Intelligence Committee because we have a phenomenal staff, but they're, for the most part, trained to be analysts. The bread and butter of the Intelligence Committee is really overseeing the intelligence agencies. It's not generally conducting this kind of investigation. So we are you know, benefited by a number of uh, great lawyers on the committee uh, and some spectacular analysts who are combining their talents to do the work in the Russian investigation. But it certainly has come in handy to have the investigative experience that I I gained as an assistant.
0: What I have observed also on the part of people who have actually tried cases in court and particularly who have done criminal cases is when they make their arguments, they don't gild them. When they make their arguments, it's about facts. And it's about how persuasively you can recite the facts in your favor. You know, the old you know, saying in my old office was, you, know, you should have the court on your side by the time that the judge is done reading the statement of facts, even before you made your legal arguments, because you can be very persuasive without rhetoric and without bombast. And I find that a lot of members of Congress, many of whom I have great respect for, and I worked in the Senate, have not learned that lesson. They think that rhetoric carries the day when actually what ends up carrying the day and is persuasive to people and powerful and gives you credibility over time is
1: sort of reasoned, measured argument. Do you have a view on how your colleagues approach that? I think that's exactly right. And it's a good thing to keep in mind in the entire political sphere in terms of persuasion. There's an awful lot of hyperbole that goes on in politics. And I think people find it off-putting. I think people find those who go on television or make arguments in committee that are just reciting a bunch of really tired talking points to be also off-putting. I find, you know, a very sometimes understated recitation of the facts uh, much more powerful. And, you know, people tease me for uh, being calm all the time. You know, what I find is uh, if you're hysterical, people just tune you out and they won't hear what you have to say. And it's hard enough, frankly, to get anyone to hear what you have to say in an environment that has become so partisan and so... Balkanized, uh, where people's views of the same facts differ so dramatically depending on their party affiliation. Uh, you know, I often use the experiment with people that, you know, what would you think if I told you that former National Security Advisor Susan Rice had met secretly with a Russian ambassador along the lines of undermining the bipartisan policy of the United States and had gotten caught and had pled guilty to a felony offense would you consider that to be colluding with the Russians? And of course they would, uh, but because it's Mike Flynn and not Susan Rice, they have a hard time seeing that. And, you know, that's just, uh, I think, sadly, uh, a function of how much we have now come to occupy these different camps that so color our perception of the same facts. My observation of the difference between a
0: criminal investigation and prosecution of the type that you and I did in a prior life Versus a congressional investigation, which you are doing now, and I, in a different prior life, also worked on, is, uh, well, there are many differences. One is that in the criminal case, in court, there's a judge, and someone decides. And so if you have an argument that you make, and you write the brief, and the other side writes a brief, and then the judge decides, and you may not agree with the judge, but there's sort of finality, and there's sort of a, has, has to be a public acceptance, that one side Is more correct than the other side. Meanwhile, in your case, with respect to the dueling memos, with respect to the FISA application on Carter Page, the majority puts in a memo, which is a style of brief, I guess, for the public to consume. And then you put in one, and everyone can just take the position that they like the one versus the other, because there's no arbiter to decide.
1: Is that frustrating? Uh, You know, that's exactly right. More than frustrating, it's uh, deeply concerning because For one thing, in this particular case, and this is different than the kind of court model you mentioned, we're violating a compact between the intelligence committee and the intelligence community. And that is, when these committees were formed, uh, it was essentially agreed that the intelligence agencies would begin sharing their most secret, highly sensitive, classified information with the committee. And the committee would respect that, uh, would protect that, do its oversight, yes, and hold the agencies responsible, yes, but not make political use of the intelligence it was getting. Uh, that was really broken with the publication of this Nunes memo, when facts were cherry-picked from a FISA application to make the FBI look bad in a very misleading way. And when this happened, you know, with our first reaction when this was taken up in committee was, let's not go down this road. Uh, this is a really bad idea, and it will mean the intelligence agencies will be loath to share things with us in the future. If you're concerned about anything that happened in the FISA court, let's bring the FBI in. You know, first of all, let's seek access to the underlying FISA applications. Almost all of the committee members had never even read them. So before we send out a memo characterizing them, let's read the underlying materials so you can see what I had been able to see because I had read them, that the memo would be very misleading." Yeah. Let me ask you, I want to get ask more questions about the memo, but
0: let's, as a backdrop, spend a couple of minutes with the listeners talking about the Intel Committee itself, how it's different from other committees in the House and the Senate. You mentioned a second ago that there has been a tradition of, of more bipartisanship historically on the Intel Committees and on other committees. Is that true? And what's the reason for that?
1: It is true. And, and it was one of the things uh, that I really loved about the committee it, and made me gravitate towards the committee. Uh, the subject matter was really not a particularly partisan subject matter. It was overseeing these, uh, you know, very mammoth uh, intelligence agencies, making sure that they had the resources to do their job and protect the country make sure they were talking to each other post 9-11 so that we didn't miss uh Uh, something right before our eyes because uh, we weren't connecting the dots. And that really didn't lend itself happily to the kind of partisanship that you see in committees that are focused on hot-button issues like uh, abortion or guns or any of the other innumerable issues that really get people's uh, dander up. Uh, It was less partisan because our meetings were not conducted in an open session. Uh, Right, (laughs) Less opportunity to grandstand. Well, the, yes, uh, you know, people grandstand in the Intelligence Committee, uh, you know, the reaction would be, hey, Joe, you know, what gives? Uh, there's nobody here. It's just us. There's nobody watching. You know, what, what's the show for? Yes, there is less grandstanding uh, in our committee hearings. The other thing I'll say, Preet, that really distinguishes the Intel Committee and makes it a very challenging one is that because so much of our work is done in closed session because it deals with highly, highly classified information, We don't have the benefit of outside validators uh, who can step in and help us do our oversight. So if you're on the transportation committee and the administration comes in and they say that high-speed rail is doing great and it's under budget and things are going swimmingly, you have any number of outside groups that could come in and say, that's just not true, there are enormous cost overruns, or these numbers don't add up. We don't get that in the intel Committee. It's very rare that we have outside parties who can weigh in and test the arguments that are being made by the agencies. So it really requires us to know the right questions to ask, to be able to press for answers, to have staff that are really familiar with the ins and outs of the agencies. Uh, and that makes it among the most challenging oversight jobs to begin with. And that's obviously something quite wholly separate and apart from the added responsibilities of the Russian investigation.
0: Let's talk about your relationship with the chairman Devin Nunes.
1: How's that relationship at the moment? It's strained, as you can imagine. We had a very positive relationship uh, for years. Uh, we've served on the committee together. I've been on the committee now for, I think, around 10 years. Uh, he has been on the committee somewhat less, but for quite a, a long time as well. And we worked were you, together- Were you friends?
0: So, we are social friends?
1: Uh, you know, we didn't necessarily, you know, get together outside of work, but we would frequently call or text each other. We both found uh, an unusual fact uh, in common that we were both Oakland Raiders fans. And given how very few of those there are, especially in Congress, that was uh, certainly something we would compare our how our team was doing from time to time. Uh, Devon really isn't uh, an ideologue in the sense of right left. Where that changed was, uh, I think, on March 21st of last year. On March 20th, we had the first open hearing in the Russia investigation when James Comey came to testify. We laid out among the Democratic members on the committee in that first public hearing what we knew from public reports, what the allegations were that needed to be investigated. And why we thought that uh, they needed to be thoroughly investigated and this needed to be done in a bipartisan, indeed nonpartisan way. It was at that hearing that Comey dropped the bombshell that, in fact, he and the FBI had been investigating the Trump campaign since July of the election year and its association with Russia. That hearing, my Republican colleagues would later tell me they considered a unmitigated disaster. It was... The very next day that the chairman went to some undisclosed location uh, in what's become known as the Midnight Run and obtained information that the following day he would go to the White House and with great fanfare present saying it was evidence of an unmasking conspiracy in the Obama administration. Uh, we would very soon learn thereafter that the information he went to present to the White House, he'd actually gotten from the White House. Um, and it's kind of sort kind of circular. It was very circular, but more than that, it it really impeached the credibility of the House intel investigation if its chairman was somehow in cahoots with the White House. And he was forced to step aside. The problem thereafter was that he never really did step aside. And indeed, months later, when he formally came back to the investigation, he admitted that he had never really recused himself. The memo business, I think, was really a, a sequel to The Midnight Run. It was something really done again in the service of the president, not in the service of the investigation. And when we asked him whether this also had been done in conjunction with the White House, uh, he declined to answer. Do you think it was? I, I had Senator Whitehouse
0: on the show a few weeks ago, and it was a principal point of, you know, aggravation on his part. The answer to the question of whether or not Nunes and the rest of the staff on the intel committee that serve him I think you use this word, you know, <laughs> which is a uh, charged term these days. Colluded with the White House, putting it together, even though Devin Nunes said has said, technically, that the White House didn't have did not have any role in drafting. Do you think they worked together and coordinated the work product? That's the
1: memo. I don't know. All I can say is that after initially refusing to answer the question uh, multiple times. Uh, he literally read a one-sentence statement that the White House had not been involved in drafting the memo. It was phrased in such a lawyerly way. The implication was, okay, they didn't write it, but they certainly were involved. What's so bad about that? So you have Nunes, who's a Republican and has you know a political viewpoint,
0: and the White House has a Republican president. What's wrong with lawyers in the White House or the president himself talking with the chair of the Intel Committee about these kinds of issues and what should be made public?
1: Well, the problem is that if the White House is trying to push out a a storyline, that the Russia investigation is just a hoax uh, and a witch hunt, and the real controversy, the real scandal is the failure to investigate his vanquished rival, Hillary Clinton. And he works with the chairman of the committee that's supposed to be investigating what Russia did in our election. Uh, and they work together to further that narrative, that's a real problem. The public is never gonna have confidence in the investigative result that comes out of that committee if the chairman is essentially working in league uh, with the White House and not doing an objective fact-finding. You know, whether the White House was involved in drafting the memo or merely concocting the idea or or what have you, the, the far broader problem is that the investigative focus of some of my colleagues, including the chairman, is really not uh, placed on what Russia did. I understand the timeline of what you described with respect to Chairman
0: Nunes's changing last March, but, but I don't think I really understand what, what really happened in his head. Was it the fact that the hearing went so badly for the president or for him? They hadn't anticipated the kinds of things that Comey would say. Why was that hearing a trigger for what you seem to be describing as Devin Nunes becoming a little bit more partisan as compared to the past?
1: You know, my first reaction when I learned that the Republicans felt that that hearing was a disaster, there was nothing disastrous about that hearing for the Republicans on our committee. Unless you considered that their job was protecting the president, not finding out the truth of what Russia did or what the Trump campaign may have done. It would only be a tragedy if if they viewed the president as their client. He's not their client. The American people are our client, uh, Democrats and Republicans. I think that the close relationship that the chair developed with the president, with the White House uh, during the campaign and continuing when he played a role in the transition team was something he didn't want to lose. And it was difficult to navigate being a surrogate and a friend of the White House with running an objective investigation and one had to give way. And unfortunately, I think for the committee and, and for the country, what gave way was the need to uh, run an objective investigation. Now, we have soldiered along anyway, and the reins were turned over in substantial part to Mike Conaway of Texas. And he and I have worked together. I think very well uh, on a bipartisan basis. Uh, not, that's not been without its difficulties because still the critical decisions are being made by the chairman. But at least the day-to-day running of things uh, has, I think, immeasurably improved uh, when Mike took over the, the leadership on the GOP side. And we have been able to, I think, do some good and important investigative work and make a lot of progress. Can we clear up the issue relating to the recusal?
0: Why was it, as as an official matter, that at one point Devin Nunes stepped away, and then what was the process by which he came back? I think that's that's confusing for a lot of people. Um, I think people don't understand that at all.
1: He stepped away after the midnight run, uh, when it was revealed that, uh, that he'd gotten these materials actually from the White House. But the reason that he gave for stepping aside or accusing himself was that an ethics complaint had been filed against him, uh, not on the basis of the midnight run, but on the basis of disclosing classified information. Um, Now that ethics uh, charge was later dropped by the committee or the committee decided not to pursue it. And the chairman said, okay, I'm no longer stepping aside or recusing myself. But the problem really hadn't been the ethics complaint. The problem had been his working in the service of the White House. And so that problem never went away. And, and even during that period of time when he had said he was stepping aside, even then he continued to make key decisions. Uh, the committee rules give the chairman the authority to issue subpoenas. And during the period in which he was supposed to be recused, we asked that we go to the other mechanism in the committee rule that allowed the committee to vote on the approval of subpoenas or that Mike Conaway be designated as the person to take over that responsibility. Uh, The chairman wouldn't allow that. He continued to insist on having that important responsibility.
0: Why is it not a blatant ethical violation to remain in control of various things, including subpoena process, during the time which you have said publicly, because of another ethics complaint, that you've stepped aside?
1: Well, at the end of the day, the only arbiter of that, because I don't think it's a, uh, that's a matter for an ethics committee to decide, uh, that kind of issue is the issue for the Speaker to decide. What kind of uh, an investigation does he want the Intelligence Committee to conduct? How serious does he want it to be? Uh, And there have been a number of entreaties to the Speaker over the last year, but they have essentially fallen on deaf ears. Uh, This is the investigation the Speaker wants done in the manner he wants it done, Uh, that is to say not very seriously and with a different objective than the American people have. And that is one that's not really focused on Russian intervention in our democracy or what we need to do to protect ourselves in the midterms or thereafter or what the Trump campaign may have done in conjunction with the Russians. But rather, how can we seek to either embarrass the Obama administration or, Preet, you and I saw as prosecutors the old defense tactic of when the evidence starts to look increasingly incriminating of the defendant, put the government on trial. And much of what we have seen from the midnight run to the memos to countless other attacks now on the State Department uh, is an effort to put the government on trial. Uh, don't look at what the Russians did. Let's put the government on trial.
0: Some of that happened with respect to the debate over the, the FISA application in connection with Carter Page and the memos that we've been talking about. What do you say to the people who claim that the FISA court was in some way misled by the Department of Justice.
1: Well, they weren't misled. The FISA court was made aware of a long history involving Carter Page and reasons why the FBI was concerned that Carter Page might be acting as the agent of a foreign power, as the agent of Russia. They laid out uh, some of the history involving Carter Page. Uh, They also uh, included information that had been obtained from Christopher Steele. Uh, and they caveated it by saying that he was hired by a person who was hired by a law firm, uh, and this was likely done as opposition research. Uh, Now, they did what they're supposed to do, uh, and this is ironic that the Republicans take issue with it. They masked the names of the individuals involved. So uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump appear as candidate one and candidate two, and the law firm isn't mentioned by its name. It's mentioned as a law firm, and this is what They're supposed to do in FISA applications uh, when they're talking about U.S. persons and U.S. entities who are not themselves the subject of the investigation to protect the privacy of people. But can the following two things both be true? One,
0: that they did what they were supposed to do and they didn't unmask by name Hillary Clinton and her campaign. And on the other hand, the argument that I've also heard is they didn't have to identify them by name because reasonable, smart people like FISA court judges who live in the world would have understood that the likely parties who were, who had an interest in this derogatory information about the Trump campaign was going to be the Clinton campaign. How do you
1: square those two things? I think that's very true. And of course, we're talking about October of the election year. There were no longer these 16 opponents of Donald Trump that had been there in the primary. There wasn't much mystery about who would be interested in undermining Donald Trump's campaign. One other important fact, though, is what's relevant to the FISA court judge is the credibility of the source of the information and the bias that the source may have, which means what's most important is for the court to know what did Christopher Steele know about who was paying him, not what others may know, because if Christopher Steele is unaware of who's paying for it, then it's not going to have the same influence necessarily over the veracity of the information he's providing and Christopher Steele we know from the public now public testimony of Glenn Simpson wasn't told who the client was so the court was given more information frankly about the likely client than Christopher Steele was although Christopher Steele may have had the same suspicions about who was ultimately uh, the client here uh, but the long and the short of it is the the FISA court was given the kind of information it should have been given uh, the FBI was acting appropriately and what you know you and I can appreciate but but others may be less aware of is Compared to most sources, uh, in whether it's, it's a search warrant application or a wiretap application or a FISA court application, relying on a proven and trusted former member of British intelligence is not a strange thing to do. Often, the sources are informants who have long criminal records, uh, or, or have uh, you know pled guilty to. Various, you know, perjurious conduct or have a financial motivation or any kinds of other illicit uh, history. Having a, you know, trusted former uh, intelligence uh, officer is a pretty high standard uh, as sources go. Any chance that the McCabe testimony could become public? I would hope that at some point, and it may have to wait until the conclusion of the investigation, that we'll publish all the transcripts uh, of the witnesses so the public can see. Uh, the actual testimony and facts themselves. Uh, this will be all the more important if we're unable to reach a unified conclusion. Uh, one of the things that I said at that March hearing last year was that the the real service, if we're, we were able to perform it, would be to present a united conclusion to the country so that they wouldn't have to choose between a Democratic uh, version of events and a Republican one. It gets back to the point you were making earlier about the two memos and how in court you have a judge who ultimately rules. Uh, Here, there won't be a judge to ultimately rule. And I said in March that I thought that the best service would be if we could present a single report and not force the country to choose, that I didn't know whether we'd be able to get there or not. And of course, a lot of things have made that far more difficult now. If we can't get there, then the next best thing is to present all the facts the American people and let them draw uh, their own conclusions from having the full benefit of the information. One other point I want to make on this, Preet, is we know a certain amount about what the Russians did and what the Trump campaign did, the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, similarly, and Bob Mueller uh, knows a different set of information. I would hope at the end of Mueller's investigation that the Congress will have the benefit of his work so that the report that we make publicly will be the most inclusive, uh, because I am concerned that Mueller may not be able to speak outside of the four corners of an indictment, and there may be very important evidence that he uncovers that may not reach the level of proof beyond reasonable doubt, but may nevertheless be clear and convincing uh, on issues like collusion or obstruction of justice that both the Congress and the public should be aware of. I was at an event with a number of
0: members of Congress, Not too long ago, and one member asked me the question with respect to the Russia investigation, both what Mueller is doing and what Congress is doing, and asked the question, how does this end? And the way I answered the question was saying, you know, I don't know, because a lot of it depends on what members of Congress do. Assuming Bob Mueller issues some report that gets forwarded to the House, what kind of oversight role Congress sees for itself and whether they do like you have suggested would be good issue something that is bipartisan and unified. So let me ask you the question. How does this end?
1: Well, Preeta, I I remember uh, listening to your presentation, which was excellent, by the way, and um, I was struck by something you said, because I'd reached very much the same conclusion, although from a slightly different point of view, uh, and that is, is there any chance that Bob Mueller would indict the president of the United States? And I think you came to the conclusion that that was unlikely because it would really divide the country, be very controversial. There's a split among scholars about whether that's even possible. And uh, and to have such a controversial and divided result would probably not be something that Bob Mueller would gravitate to. I think that there's no uh, constitutional prohibition on indicting even a sitting president. But for very similar prudential reasons, Bob Mueller would be unlikely to do it, even if he found sufficient evidence. Uh, yeah, and I, think this, I don't think,
0: I think it's very it, unlikely, right?
1: I don't think he would want to delegate the responsibility for determining the fate of the republic to 12 lay jurors somewhere. So even while I don't think there's a constitutional prohibition on it, I think should he reach that point, uh, he would be far more likely to refer the matter to Congress for consideration of impeachment if the facts warranted it. I don't obviously know whether Bob Mueller finds uh, that he has the evidence to support that kind of referral or recommendation if he did there's a real political standard and the political standard in a gop congress is whether republican members can go back to republican districts and make the case that the president's conduct was so incompatible with office with the office that uh, they voted to remove him and it wasn't simply about nullifying an election that those other people didn't like if those gop members can't make that argument there is no impeachment regardless of how high the crime or how serious the misdemeanor. And that political bar is, is very high. You're not in favor of impeachment just yet? I'm not in favor of really talking about impeachment at this point, while the investigation is still very much ongoing. Uh, if it ultimately is the case that the evidence rises to that level, uh, to the level of putting the country through what would be a, a, an incredibly wrenching experience... It ought to be something we embrace reluctantly and not be seen as uh, rushing ahead with. For one thing, if the evidence does warrant it down the road, perception that, well, this is what Democrats wanted from the very beginning, only makes that case more difficult. I, I don't think it wise to really be talking about or pushing impeachment while the investigation is still ongoing. Do you think that repeated
0: lies to the public, not to investigators, but to the public, by a sitting president is a basis for impeachment? Because I believe Ken Starr seems to be of that view.
1: I I think that would be really stretching what the founders had in mind with the impeachment clause uh, that a president who told repeated falsehoods the American people committed a high crime or misdemeanor. Now it's true. That what the founders meant by misdemeanors is something different than what we consider them today we We would look at a misdemeanor as as uh, something less serious than a high crime, but uh, I think what they had in mind was you know serious malfeasance in office, whether it was criminal or not, and you could say that you know serial lying to the people fits in that category. do you think
0: that your fellow Democrats talk too much about Russia in the investigation? no obviously. It is occupying a lot of your time. You're the ranking member of the Intelligence Committee. I'm a podcaster who has some experience on some of these things. So it's not doesn't seem that crazy for someone like you, or in a different context, someone like me, to be talking about these issues a lot. But as a matter of bread and butter politics, should your colleagues stick to other issues?
1: First of all, I, I always try to emphasize, not just with my colleagues, but uh, more generally with the public, that when we talk about Russia, we need to view the whole issue in its far broader context. And that is, this wasn't just about helping Donald Trump or hurting Hillary Clinton. But the Russians really were after uh, is undermining our very democracy, and not just our democracy, but they've been doing this around the world, uh, attacking the very idea of liberal democracy. Uh, But I also share with my colleagues Look, I talk about Russia because it's central to my committee responsibilities, and I think what's going around uh, on around the world is, uh, is really serious and needs confronting. But you shouldn't be talking about Russia. You should be talking about the economy. You should be talking about uh, what you're going to do to improve people's lives. I think the key to the kind of midterms that we need, and we'll have a good, good midterm no matter what we do, but we need a great midterm, the kind of midterm that takes back the Congress To put a real constraint on this administration. And what that's going to require is giving people a positive and compelling reason to turn out and vote for Democrats and not just a reason to vote against the other side. I think the three things, frankly, that Democrats should be campaigning on right now are the economy uh, and the fact that we're going through some serious structural changes in the economy, that automation is going to Aggravate a lot of the trends that we've seen over the last 10 or 20 years if, if we don't face it and come up with good solutions and I think we ought to be campaigning on Support for family which means being able to send your kids to school and not have them chase down the hall with someone with an assault weapon And it means allowing parents to get adequate health care for themselves and their kids and making sure that kids aren't deported to other countries They've never lived uh, and finally, I, I think we should be campaigning on a return to decency so, Although I Jeff, would, Flake,
0: Jeff Flake, who's been on the show,
1: who's a proponent of decency and normalcy, apparently has no shot at retaining his seat. Well, I want to say something about Jeff Flake, who I have great admiration for. He and I came to Congress together. People denigrate Jeff Flake because they say, well, you know, he's not running for re-election and he was going to lose anyway. Uh, Jeff Flake is a good enough politician and a smart enough guy that if all he cared about was being reelected, he would have been easily on the path to reelection. And the reason that he isn't and wasn't is that during the campaign, when he could see, as we all could, that Donald Trump was unfit for this office, he said so. And later in the campaign, when it became clear nonetheless that he was going to be the GOP nominee and so many other Republicans fell in line, he refused to fall in line. Had he only cared about getting reelected, he would have fallen in line like everybody else uh, in his party in Congress, uh, and he would have been coasting to reelection. But there was something more important to him, and I think that was looking his kids in the eye. And he will leave the Senate, I think, with great pride in his service. I think many others uh, will leave the Congress with shame about what they did and, more importantly, what they didn't do when our institutions were at such grave risk.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I heard a lot of people say after he was on the show, when you otherwise see him speak, that talk is cheap. He still votes overwhelmingly in the way that you would expect a Trump supporter to vote. But to my mind, I think echoing what you're saying is any voice, Republican or Democrat, and particularly Republican, because it goes against self-interest often, who joins the chorus of people saying, you know, decency is important and institutions are important, should be welcomed um, by the other side.
1: I think that's exactly right, Preet. and, you know, one last point I'll make, and then I probably should run. One of the real disappointments uh, of the last year for me has not been what kind of President Donald Trump turned out to be. I think that was sadly too predictable, but rather how few would be willing to stand up to him, how quickly he'd be able to remake the party in his deeply flawed image, uh, and how seldom my colleagues would be willing to confront him. Uh, that has been a terrible realization our democracy turns out to be far more fragile than we might have imagined and far more dependent on the goodwill of the people and the conviction of the people who are serving uh at any given time Uh, maybe that should have been self-evident but it's becoming all too apparent right now i cherish frankly the voices like jeff flakes yes he's very conservative and we vote completely differently on most issues but He has a strength of character about him and an integrity about him that you don't see displayed by many in the GOP and Congress right now. And uh, I admire that. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great to to join you. I'm a big fan.
0: So this is the point in the show where I talk about something that's happened in the news in the last week that maybe didn't get so much attention. So this week, one of the things that happened was we have the Oscar ceremony, I think the 90th Oscars in the history of the country. And while there was a lot of fanfare over Best Picture and Best Director, there's a little less attention always to the category of documentary film. So it turns out that over the last year, I have only seen one of the films in the documentary category nominated for Best Film. And it's a movie called Icarus that was recommended to me by one of our podcast guests from the past, Ben Wittes. It turns out Ben Wittes is a very good predictor of Oscar success too. This movie won best documentary and took on the Oscar. And it's a fascinating story that has all the elements of things that I think about and care about. It is about Russia. It's about criminal activity and misconduct and it's about the truth. It's directed by a man named Brian Vogel who thought he would delve into the sort of shady world of doping in professional sports, and in particular, he started out trying to investigate doping in biking because he had been so disappointed in what had been revealed about Lance Armstrong. And as a matter of luck would happen, he decided to self-dope to see if he could get away with it, to a little bit blow the lid off of what was happening around the world and specifically in Russia. And he was connected to a very colorful Russian Olympic doctor, By the name of Grigory Rochenkov. I don't want to give too much of it away, but as the story unfolds, you see that Rochenkov, who had participated in bad conduct and in the doping of athletes over the course of time, made a fateful decision that he would be a whistleblower over the Russian athletic program.
1: I was thinking that would start, I ask you questions and you answer yes or no. Were you the mastermind that cheated the Olympics? Yes.
0: And what unfolds in the film is a story of bad conduct, of lying, of cheating, but also a little bit of redemption on the part of somebody who had participated in that bad activity. As the director said when he accepted his Oscar. He said, quote, "We hope Icarus is a wake-up call, yes about Russia, but more than that, about the importance of telling the truth." close quote. The documentary had a big impact on the ability of Russia to participate in the last Olympics and has had an impact on how people are thinking about the issue of drugs in sports. And it's just another example of so many that are sometimes unsung, of individuals who are not in government, who are private citizens, who by the use of their voice or their filmmaking ability or their songwriting ability shine a light on something that's important. This is an example of that and it's heartening to see them being recognized. So my congratulations to the filmmakers of Icarus. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Congressman Adam Schiff, and thank you for listening. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions, as always, about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or send an email to Tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. And this week, thanks to CityVox, and Lizzie Peabody. I'm Preet Barrara. Stay tuned. Simply Safe is the home security for right now when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24 7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com slash Preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee.